Thank you for joining us for this week's sermon podcast from the First United Methodist Church of Parable. Uh, we worked with the Colossians 1 the last two weeks. I preached the introduction, and then Chase preached last week from the last few verses in Colossians 1, uh, where it tells us that Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God. And that's sort of the, that's sort of the thrust of Colossians, that Jesus Christ is the, uh, the supreme one, the one we ought to worship and follow. And so in the next few chapters, Paul sort of uh, unpacks what that means for us and why that's important. And so as I said, a little bit of a Bible study, kind of try to read closely, look at the text, learn hopefully by the end of these few weeks what the, what's going on in Colossians and why that's an important book for us. And so today, Colossians 2, 6 through 19, um, those words are not all on the screen, Caroline. Can you change those real quick to make them fit? Colossians 2, 6 through 19, um, these are printed in your screen, uh, printed on the screen. They're also in the bulletin, uh, and of course, you can follow along in your own Bible or phone or, or whatever device you may have. I'm going to begin reading, and you can follow along as you're able there. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, continue to live your lives in Him, rooted and built up in Him and established in faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the universe, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have come to fullness in him who is the head of every ruler and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a spiritual circumcision by putting off the body of flesh in the circumcision of Christ when you were buried with him in baptism You were also raised with him through faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. And when you were dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive together with him when he forgave us all our trespasses. Erasing the record that stood against us with its legal demands, he set this aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and made a public example of them, triumphing over them in it. Therefore, do not let anyone condemn you in matters of food and drink or observing festivals or new moons or Sabbaths. These are only a shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Do not let anyone disqualify you, insisting on self-abasement and worship of angels, dwelling on visions puffed up without cause by a human way of thinking, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and held together by its ligaments and sinews grows with a growth that is from God. May God bless our reading of the Holy Scriptures and let us say together, Amen. Let us pray. Holy God, it is with thanksgiving that we worship today as we read from these ancient words. We pray that your spirit would be at work in our reading, would be at work in our study, that in these words we might find your word for us today. God, we give thanks that you have seen fit to call us to this place, this hour, this moment that we might find the worries of the past week and the concerns of the week to come, that we might find those set aside for just a brief time. We might find our hearts at peace, fully at peace in your presence. This in Christ's name we pray. Amen. 
All right, I was on vacation last Sunday. I know many of you were here. I appreciate uh, Reverend Chase carrying things for me and the other staff and volunteers, of course, making sure things go smoothly. It's so nice to be able to go on vacation and know that uh, the church and the work of the church is in good hands. Uh, my family went down to the beach. That is a tradition that I married into. Jill's family for a couple of generations have been Florida panhandle beach people. Uh, and so I have married into that tradition. And so I have become a beach person, uh, not supernatural at first, but it's become easier with time to learn to enjoy uh, the beach and what it uh, gives to you as a week of vacation. I know many of you have been this summer. We have three or four church families that are down at the beach in some way uh, right now, and so that's a popular place to rest and relax. It is quite nice. I went down there with great intentions, right, uh, that I would set aside all the work that had been going on this summer. It's been a great summer from Vacation Bible School to OMP to Ready, Set, Read uh, to some of the work we've been doing more administratively, uh, but it's been very busy. It's been kind of hectic, and so I went down there thinking, you know, this will be a week where I truly uh, disconnect, right, and so I attempted to do that for about an hour, right, uh, sitting there uh, Sunday, um, Sunday morning, whatever day we got there, Sunday morning, Monday morning, uh, listening to the waves, uh, trying to not think about uh, the things that we left behind in Paragold, uh, trying to just be present to the moment, uh, to be calm, to be at peace, to watch the kids play. I mean, I was working really hard at not working. Are you with me, right? Uh, and then I got that itch, and maybe you get that itch sometime. You know, 30 or 40 minutes of peace and quiet is about all one can stand, and so I reached for my phone, right? Well, I'll just check in here with a few things and look at my work email. Oh, there's a few things going on, some HVAC things. Some other, maybe I should call the church and offer my opinion, right? It's good to be important. Uh, make sure people don't forget about you, right? Uh, maybe check in on social media, and so you look a little bit. I told myself I wouldn't do that, but I did anyway, you know, looking at Facebook and Instagram and see what other people are doing, and you feel a little curiosity, if not jealousy and envy, and then, of course, social media is loaded with these advertisements, right? 30% off Bass Pro Shops, right? 20% uh, off of my favorite uh, dress clothes or what have you. And so then you, you spend a few minutes going down that rabbit hole thinking about how much you should spend or not spend. And before you know it, you spend a whole hour just kind of wasting sort of time and wasting some of your energy. And you feel, I don't know if you feel this, but I feel this sort of emptiness, this sort of confusion, envy, jealousy, anxiety. It's like, Man, what was, what was that about? I'm supposed to be down here on vacation, relaxing, resting, and here I find myself caught up in those same old patterns. Today I want to think with you about Colossians 2 and why it's still relevant for us, even though it seems a little bit ancient and old. And as I said at the beginning, I want to do a little bit of a Bible study with you, and so what would be helpful is if you would keep your bulletin in front of you, we'll kind of look at those verses. You can see there that Colossians in this text is broken down into three paragraphs, now, of course, it wasn't in paragraph form in its, in its ancient writing, but, but it's in paragraph form for us today. And that's going to give us kind of a threefold way to look at this text, right? And so I want to zoom in, look really closely at the text. You might write down a few notes. I want to unpack some of the technical things that Paul is talking about. And then, of course, at the end, we'll zoom back out and try to connect some of these lessons with us in our modern world. So first thing, Colossians 2, 6 through 12. That's the first little paragraph we read there today. 
Paul begins in writing in 2.6 here. He says uh, all the things that Chase talked about last week, right? Christ is the image of the invisible God. And so there's this high Christology about who Jesus is and what Jesus means for the salvation of the world, right? And, and Chase unpacked that well for you last week. And so then in chapter 2, verse 6, Paul begins to say this. So therefore, you ought to continue. You ought to be rooted. You ought to remember that you are established. You ought to celebrate what you've been taught. And you ought to have thanksgiving in your heart. Because of all these things that are, that are happening around you, uh, because of Jesus' power and goodness, you've been made part of this new story and therefore continue in it. And here we get a little bit of an indication of what Paul's concern is in writing to the church in Colossae. Uh, we don't think, as I talked about in that first week, we don't necessarily think that Paul had a personal relationship with this church. We don't have evidence that he traveled there himself. But apparently the concerns that he's hearing through the mediators, the people that are going back and forth, is that this young church in Colossae, not only are they following Jesus, but they're also continuing to mix in some of these other religious traditions and practices. And so we begin to get a little hint here in chapter 2 of what Paul's concern is. And so he says to them, do not be taken captive. Do not be taken captive by human wisdom and tradition. So this is starting to unpack the argument, right? He says, you're starting to hear some of these other theories, these other philosophies, these other superstitions, but really what you need is Christ Jesus. And it is in Jesus in whom the, the fullness of the deity dwell. That's a wonderful Colossians phrase. It is in Christ Jesus in whom the fullness of the deity dwell. Christ is who God is. God is who Christ is. You don't need to look any further. Jesus is it. There's no other tradition or superstition or practice or religion. It's Jesus. It is the fullness of God revealed to you in Jesus. And then Paul says to those church members there in Colossae, he says, and the reason that you have the ability, the power, the reason that you have the power to follow Jesus in this way is because you have been baptized. It's because you've been baptized. And so we're reading first century Christian literature. We're reading some of the earliest documents pertaining to the history of the church. And the thing that they did in the beginning of the church was people came into the church, they were baptized, just like we do today. And then Paul seems to have some awareness of the, the Jewish connections there in Colossae, the Jewish history. And so he uses this other word, circumcision. And he uses that very important. He says it's not a circumcision in the Old Testament way, in the Hebrew way. Instead, it's a circumcision of the heart. And so just like in the Old Testament, when, when people were circumcised, they entered into the family of God. That was the means. That was the rite, the ritual by which people entered into the family of God. Now in the New Testament, under the ministry of Jesus and the Holy Spirit, the way in which people enter the family of God is through baptism. And Paul says a baptism is a circumcision of the heart, is a cutting off of all of those old ways of thinking and living. And Paul says this here in Colossians. He also says it in Romans. It's one of my favorite images, and it's so important. He says when you're, when you're baptized, when that water comes over you or when you go under the water, when you're baptized, you are put to death with Jesus Christ. And in your baptism, you are given the power of the resurrection. That is what baptism is. That is how baptism works. It ties you to Jesus in death. It puts to death all of the old ways, and it gives you new life. And so Paul's writing to the young believers in the church in Colossae, telling them, you are baptized. Those old ways of living and thinking, they don't apply to you anymore. In the Methodist tradition, along with most traditions uh, like ours, we do not baptize people more than once. 
right? We do not baptize people more than once. Some of you may have been baptized more than once for, for different reasons, and that's understandable. But in our church, we won't do that. We believe you're baptized one time. Whether you're three months old or three years old or 10 years old or 50 years old, it really doesn't matter. You are baptized when you enter into the family of God, enter into the church. And though we only baptize people once, we encourage you, just like today, just like Paul's doing in this letter to Colossa, we encourage you to remember your baptism. Remember your baptism. Remember that you're baptized. It may have been something that only happened once, and it may have been a date that you don't remember. You may have been too little to have that in your memory. What we mean, though, is not to remember the day of your baptism. We don't remember the event itself. What we really mean is to remember that you are baptized. Remember that you're baptized. We do this when we baptize someone in here, right? We will remind everyone here that you too are baptized just as this person is being baptized. Or like in January, we typically remember Jesus' baptism and that's usually a time where we remind the congregation, you are baptized as well. But it can happen in much more common ways and, and it doesn't happen even happen to be at church, right? Like, like anytime you sort of engage with, with water, think about this, when you go to the, to the sink and wash your hands, Remember that you're baptized. When you take a shower every morning and the water runs over you, remember that you are baptized. When you go to the lake and swim and play on the tube, remember that you're baptized. When you go to the beach. And when we say remember your baptism, remember that you're baptized, what we really mean is this is the most defining thing about you. There is nothing more true about you in that you are baptized into Christ's death and resurrection. Even now, even sitting here today, this is the most true thing about yourself. All right, that's 2, 6 through 12. Let's look at the next few verses. These are some of my favorite verses in all the Bible. 2, 13 through 15. So Paul continues, just as you were dead in your trespasses, right? You were dead in your sins. Uh, you have been given new life in Jesus Christ. And here he introduces this sort of legal language. He says there in, in verse 14, he says these these accounts, these accounts of your sins and your shortcomings. And scholars are sort of divided here whether we should read this like purely as a metaphor, like does Paul just mean like your personal accounts when you think about all the things you've done wrong or the things in which you have, have done less than you should, uh, or do we mean this in like a very technical legal sense? And some people think it's the latter, that maybe when Paul says like the accounts of your shortcomings, he actually means that there was an accounting in Colossae, an accounting of religious practice and experience, religious participation. So whether it's a spiritual sense or a legal sense or a metaphorical sense, it doesn't necessarily matter. But Paul says that, that Jesus has taken the account of your shortcomings, the lists of things in which you are, are sinful, in which you are coming up short. And Paul says here that Jesus has nailed it to the cross. Jesus has taken your record and nailed it to the cross. I love that image. I love that image because oftentimes when we talk about the cross, uh, we talk about it in a sort of passive way. We talk about Jesus being the perfect sacrifice, and what we mean is that kind of Old Testament imagery, that Old Testament language, a sacrificial lamb. Hebrews, the book of Hebrews really picks up on that, that Jesus is the once and perfect sacrifice. And there's a sort of passivity in that, that Jesus is sort of passive. Jesus is the one who gives up his life as a sacrifice for others. But here, Paul's doing something a little bit different. There's no passivity in this Jesus. This is a very active Jesus. Jesus goes to the cross and takes your records. 
your records of all your sins and shortcomings and takes them with him and nails them to the cross. And in this sense, Jesus is like sort of taking on the cross, right? He's sort of taking it on in a very active way, a very serious way. And not only he himself, but all of our, our sin and brokenness too. But then Paul continues, and I said this is one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture, verse 15. By going to the cross, by nailing our sins and shortcomings to the cross, verse 15, Paul says, he disarmed the rulers and the authorities. He made a public example of them, triumphing over them in it. He disarmed the rulers and authorities, made an example of them, triumphed over them. So what Paul says is what what appears to be a Jesus defeat, the Roman authorities, the Jewish authorities that have put Jesus to death, what appears to be Jesus' defeat ends up being Jesus' victory. That in the cross and in the resurrection, Jesus has embarrassed the authorities of his day because they have done the thing that they, they most want to do. They have put Jesus to death. They have ended his life and ministry, and yet... This ends up being an example of of their powerlessness. This thing that they thought they were doing ends up being hollow and void and empty. We know in the ancient world, of course, Jesus' crucifixion is just one example. We know in the ancient world that Roman leaders, Roman military leaders, that they would take their their military uh, victories, that they would take their their captives, those some even who were, were put to death, and they would parade them through the city. And they would point at them and say, look at what we've done. Look at the victory that we have won. Here Paul uses that image and kind of reverses it and says, look at the victory they thought they had won. And yet Jesus has been resurrected. And he's embarrassed all of these powerful authorities. Because the worst thing that they can do actually didn't really do any good. Right? Triumph in the cross. All right, the last section. Shadow and substance. So given these things that are true, right, given that you've been baptized and you're already living into the power of the resurrection, given that Jesus has triumphed over the powers and authorities of the world and that their power is now void and empty, right, Paul turns in verse 16 to his favorite word. He says, therefore, right, because these things are true, therefore, the argument continues, here's here's what I want you to know, right, you shouldn't be led astray by food or drink, by festivals or moons or Sabbaths or self-abasement or worship of angels, or visions, or human ways of thinking. Because you've been baptized, because Christ has defeated the powers of the world, you should not be led astray by all these other religious practices, traditions, superstitions, ways of thinking. Now, I think Paul is kind of crafty here, because what he knows about the church in Colossae is that these are young Christians who are learning to follow Jesus, And as they're learning to follow Jesus, they're surrounded by all of these other religious traditions and experiences, Roman religions, Greek traditions, pagan traditions, even Judaism itself. And many of these people have a a past where they've worshipped in another way, and maybe they're continuing to worship in some of those ways as well as trying to follow Jesus. And there's a real mix-match, amalgamation, all sorts of religious things are going on at once. And so Paul doesn't come out on sort of the full attack. He doesn't say... All those gods are useless, get rid of them, move on. What he says is he uses this really helpful metaphor. He says all of these other things, food and drink and moons and Sabbath and self-abasement and worship of angels and visions, these are a shadow. These are a shadow 
of what is to come. But the substance, the real thing, is Christ Jesus. In other words, these other religious traditions, these other practices, these other habits that you have, they're shadows. They, they kind of look helpful. They kind of look like the real thing. They may even improve your life to some degree, but when you go to follow them out, they end up being empty. And Paul says, unfortunately, what you're doing there in Colossae is you're, you're trading a lot of shadows for the real thing. And the real thing, the substance, what you really want and need in your life is not different foods and drinks and moons and Sabbath. It's not those things. It is Jesus Christ himself. Don't trade the shadows for the substance. The real thing is Jesus. And so you ought to hold fast to the substance, to Jesus Christ who is the head. Paul is crafty with this metaphor, not totally attacking their other religious traditions, but trying to say that in the end, they don't, they don't really, really do for you everything you're hoping they'll do. And what you actually need, of course, is Jesus Christ. Now let's talk a little bit about how this text might relate to us. And I was trying to, to get at that a little bit in the introduction. When we read these ancient texts and we think about these ancient people, there's a little bit of a historical gap there. And we may even kind of roll our eyes at the silliness of these ancient folks. They're so silly, right? They got all these weird traditions, these religious practices, these pagan worship experiences, these Greek gods, these Roman gods. Like, oh man, I'm so glad. I'm so glad that we live in this modern time and that our hearts and minds are no longer distracted by all of these shadowy gods, right? That's sort of the way we sometimes read this text. And we think that because of the Enlightenment, because we're scientific people now, that we're really not caught up in those distractions in the same way that those ancient people were. I want to suggest to you that that's not necessarily the case. We may not be caught up in festivals of other moons or other Sabbaths, but Paul says really clear there that sometimes we are simply led astray by human ways of thinking. By human ways of thinking, which I think captures a whole lot of my life. I was on vacation this week, so I was reading the news a little more closely, paying attention to the news. I don't know if you know this, but everyone is worried about the economy. Are you worried about the economy? Just raise your hand, worried about the economy. Turns out the whole world's worried about the economy. I didn't know this until I got down to the beach, right? Reading all these news stories about inflation and fuel prices and home prices and loans and interest rates. That's not something I know a whole lot about, but I was trying to study up on those things a little bit. As I studied on vacation about the economy, my anxiety began to grow. Yes, are you with me? And then when I got home, we checked in on our personal finances, right? I logged into the bank account. Turns out we spent a little bit more in Florida than we thought we did, right? Uh, that sometimes happens on vacation. So now we're thinking about saving a little money as we begin the school year together. Was reminded when we got home that we owe quarterly tax estimates. I don't know if some of you owe those tax estimates, but we had to do that real quick and get those in the mail. The economy, our financial lives, are sort of this invisible force that, that really really hangs over a lot of our thinking and we know that it's a powerful force because we can't imagine a world where the economy doesn't exist right this is the way things are the stock market and savings and checking and interest and this is just a it's just one of many forces that sort of drives our thinking uh, others we can think about are, are things like law and order we have some lawyers in here we have lawyers in our church we depend on a certain system of law and order in our nation because we assume if it weren't for this legal system if it weren't for these prisons and this police then things would just spin off into chaos and so we've sort of accepted that this is a, 
a world that has to exist. We can't imagine it any other way. This is one of those powers that guides our thinking. Another one I was thinking about a little bit was what we might call DIY spirituality. DIY spirituality. This perhaps is the most prevalent in today's world. There's a lot of folks who have lost connection with the church, but they still want to be spiritual. And so they go seeking those spiritual fulfillment. Uh, they go seeking spiritual fulfillment in other ways. DIY spirituality. I'm thinking about things like uh, the Enneagram. Are you familiar with the Enneagram, some of you? The Enneagram is like a personality profile test. People are really into the Enneagram. Uh, Reverend Chase and I have to do all of those personality profile tests. And what they really tell you is why you're so dysfunctional, right? Are you familiar with this? And so I've done them all. I have a binder of like 12 profiles that tell all of the problems I have in my, in my personality, right? But there's a way in which those can become so fascinating that they kind of become their own spiritual guide and you take the right personality test and you get a new smoothie uh, and you get some essential oils and you listen to your favorite podcast right and that's sort of a recipe for spiritual enlightenment social media and the internet we've accepted that these things are just just truisms in our lives that we have to be on social media we have to be online but when you have a little bit of time to reflect you see the way in which they shape our souls and they guide us and they lead us into some pretty dark places of envy and jealousy and wastefulness and want and desire unholy desire paul writes to the church in Colossae and says beware of these shadowy figures they're not necessarily evil but they're distracting you from the substance. The substance is Christ Jesus. I want to suggest to you today that we may be less spiritual in some sense than our ancient forefathers. We don't worship other gods in the same way, right? We don't have other monuments or other places of, of worship. But our souls are, are just, as, just as capable of being distracted. And we follow these powers and these forces and we allow them to shape our lives and they, they narrate the way in which we live. What Paul is saying is don't confuse those shadows. They're important. They might have some power over us, of course, but, but don't confuse those shadows with the substance. You are baptized. You have already been buried and raised with Jesus. Jesus has defeated the powers of this world and you've been invited to live into this truth that all of those other stories that are attempting to shape you, they do not have power over you because you know the one who truly holds the power, the risen Lord Jesus Christ. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. Holy God, we give thanks for the ways in which uh, the early church committed itself to following Jesus. Uh, and surely, God, it was difficult then to know the ways in which it they were being called to follow Jesus, to put away their old selves, to put away the distractions and the spiritual shadows. God, we find ourselves much in the same place, seeking to follow Jesus, knowing that Jesus is the way and the truth in life, and yet finding our lives constantly, constantly overwhelmed by other shadowy figures. God, help us to remember we are baptized. We have been cut off from those powers. We worship and follow Jesus alone whose resurrection is already being made known to us. These things in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. You can find out more about First United Methodist Church by going to our website at www.fumcparacle.org.
May God bless you this week.